0: I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with the three amigos today, Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello. Mr. Nate Straw. Hello, everyone. And Mr. none other than Drew Dill. Hello. Hello. Today, we're talking about an article called Time is on Your Side. I start out this article with a fun little story about a documentary called Hands on a Hard Body. Uh, Don't get the wrong idea. It's a a documentary about a competition that they do in none other than Longview, Texas. Um, 24 contestants all put their hands on a pickup truck, and last man or woman with their hand on the pickup truck uh, wins the vehicle. So... And he guessed it. we guys read the article. I can't even say this. But I was pretty impressed. Longer than I thought. Way longer. So uh, the winner for for the the year of the documentary was 77 hours. So over three days. When we were talking about this before the podcast, um, Mr. Nate Straw kind of chuckled and said, that's it. Only three days, um, which uh, there's no way he could last that long. So I don't know why uh, on God's green earth he thinks that he'd win this pickup truck. But tell us more, Nate.
1: I don't know. I feel like I could just rest my hand on the wheel maybe if I needed to sleep. I feel like there's a ways around Stop. it.
0: Stop. I'm going to pause real quick. Yep. There's rules. You, you can sleep standing up. Okay. No, I'm asking you. Uh, state, no, a, can't you just lay down and rest your hand on you, it? Or, I mean, I don't did you know? read the article? You can't squat. You can't lean over. You oh. literally have to be standing with your hand Broke on it. Broke the rules. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could win, too, if I could sleep in the bed of the truck. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I felt like Nate was way less impressed once he found out that there was breaks yep. in this competition. Yep. Right
3: yeah. yeah. Five-minute breaks, 15 That's true. Minutes. That was my first question. I was like, wait a minute. There's no breaks? No bathroom breaks? Because that's like true suffering.
0: Yeah. Um, You can look at the details. It's something to the effect of like a five-minute break per hour and a 15-minute break per six hours. Nonetheless, I would not last at all. I need my sleep. I value my sleep. Uh, But the whole reason we started talking about this is I did a funny Google search of saying like what are different Guinness World Records of like the longest time. They had dancing competitions and different things like that. That picture was actually funny because one of the persons was actually asleep. On the person's shoulder while they were dancing. <laughs> so, and I don't remember the time on that, but it was really long. Um, anyway, the reason I open this up is because this has a similarity to investing. The most important variable to building long term wealth is time. So, in this article, I gave you the finance 101 equation of how compounding interest works. And today we're just going to talk about those three variables. And those three inputs are what you save or what you contribute to your investments, what your returns are, and how long you stay invested. The reason I opened with that funny story is that time component, uh, which is the exponent in, in our equation, plays the biggest factor. Um, but before we even get there, we'll just kind of go one by one and... Um, And maybe even I'll just hand it off to you, Sean. What were your thoughts on the article or kind of things that stood out to you?
3: Yeah, my first thought was uh, we talk about this a lot, right? Because we know that the power of compounding interest does take time. And I think that sometimes people early in their investment careers, and I say that as people that are at the beginning stages of savings or maybe at the beginning stages of their peak earning years, they really focus on the investment management part because that's the fun part. That's the sexy part. If they own Tesla, if they can tell their friends that they outperform them. But I think that they struggle to realize that that's not going to be the needle mover, especially in the beginning years of savings. It's that staying committed and staying exposed to the market over the long run, that's going to make the bigger difference. Um, so yes, investment uh, choosing the right investments is very important because of the expected return over time. But it's not if one person had a 9% return compared to an 8% return, if you're starting with a really small dollar amount, that percentage difference doesn't move the needle. The saving and growing and compounding over 20, 30 years, that's what makes the bigger difference.
0: What you say resonates with me, because I think about when you start saving, it's almost like, like, for me, I, I bought a Peloton last week. And putting it in our garage, getting it all set up, getting the special shoes, and, and everything that goes along with that process is, is exciting. It's actually pretty fun. And it, it, I look forward to using that as, a, as exercise equipment. When you start investing, there's not really anything exciting that goes along with it. And I would analogize it to say, like, if you took an apple seed and you went in the backyard right now and you planted a seed, uh, I don't know what you do tomorrow. Like you go and look at the dirt of where that's planted. Investing is the exact same way. All the fruit that that tree will bear is going to come way further down the road. Um, and I don't think people always walk into investing with that attitude or understanding. Um, and they want, I don't want to say instant gratification, but they want to experience the investment or feel it or, or move the needle. Um, and, and unfortunately, when time is the most important component, uh, the the needle mover is just keeping your hand on the pickup truck
2: yeah there's so many things when i when i think of the time horizon piece when i'm meeting with clients for instance i think when i have a client who's in their 30s or 20s i get really excited because i realize that their time horizon for say retirement is so much longer and so i get so excited but it's interesting i get excited because of the miracle of compounding is that's exactly the reason and so when i see a longer time horizon I do think of allocation, though, is really fun because I'm going to allocate that portfolio a lot more different when I know that the time horizon is a lot longer. So the two kind of do go right hand in hand in that regard. There's obviously other variables, but I was thinking of uh, my sister-in-law who got a job at a bank and she's 21, just turned 21, and they offer a 401k and they offer a match dollar for dollar. And I was so excited. I'm like, you don't understand. You're 21 years old everything that you put in here now because you're so young right And it's going to be over 40 years until you retire you're you're going to be so much more well off than everybody else right that's not contributing to that time most people start saving typically in their 30s i think for retirement but that difference of nine years that time horizon that gets me super excited so i time horizon i i would say is one of the biggest greatest components to the whole the whole equation and and obviously this is what your article is picking up on but yeah
0: yeah, and that's why in the equation you find it in that exponent category because we understand, and I talk about it in the article, the difference between something moving on a linear path versus something moving in, in kind of a parabolic nature. And that time component is where you get that multiplier effect.
1: Yeah, what's really neat is as advisors, we've been able to see this firsthand, looking at sometimes sometimes hundreds of accounts. I know some of us worked at Morgan Stanley in every portfolio that you look at tells a story. And a lot of times, the one of, the ones that have had the best types of returns and consistent returns are the ones that have that compounded interest from the high dividend yields or, or interest going right back in and not too much turnover, not excessive turnover, not too much exposure to really volatile names. And so when you, just from our, from our side of the table, when we've seen this play out hundreds and hundreds of times, looking at the portfolios, you know, thirty years later, um, it's it's just reinforced that whole concept. Um, it's one thing to read about it and to see it, um, you know, studied. That's another see, you know, thing to maybe. Work with someone that's in their uh, late seventies that saved their whole life and has, has practiced these principles, and to see them on the end of that, and you know, having lived through all those down cycles and scary times, but they've stayed disciplined, they've stayed the course, and um, it's cool to to see a large sample sets of hundreds of different uh, different types of portfolio composition and in in client types and see that play out in the long term
0: yeah it's fun to hear those stories of somebody 40 or 50 years ago bought a stock in a burger joint um, and you see that uh, the cost basis was X and now the value is just this monstrous number and you start to not get that textbook realization but like oh wow Like, this is how people have built long-term wealth. The the hard part, though, is 30 years ago, you three gentlemen were in diapers. So uh, 30 years doesn't happen in a blink of eye, right? Um, There are some attributes, some ideas of temperament or endurance or patience uh, that are not the norm and that are not uh, innate in us that we have to kind of – I don't know, exercise and, and, build into those things. But when we understand the simple nature of that compound insurance calculator, um, we understand how important that time component is. Yeah. I think
3: Nate said a, a few really good things that stuck out to me. Uh, one is when he says not to have turnover in the portfolio, uh, he means not to constantly make changes or to try and chase things or ideas.
0: Like and what I'm calling in the article, the fiddle factor, right? Yeah. Just fiddling with it yeah. or tinkering for no reason.
3: Exactly. And, and I think that's important because, um, Trevor mentions in the article the expected returns based off of asset class and uh, I think that that's a good segue because you know making sure it's not always comfortable it's not always easy and as Nate said you know you, you need to be bold during those tough times where of course it, it might feel easier to fiddle or make changes and uh, and to go to something more conservative but just know that, that there is a price for that so Trevor maybe you can touch on the difference of expected returns and how that impacts the overall formula
0: Yeah, um, and we'll we'll kind of uh, set a path for this conversation. So we're going to break this conversation into three parts. Uh, We're going to talk about that time component, which we've kind of touched on already. We're going to talk about um, what you contribute and how that principle part matters. And then what you're talking about right now is returns. So we'll start there. We'll start with returns. Um, The interesting thing about returns is they are what everybody wants to talk about. Uh, They're the fun thing to chase, and they're the very, very fun thing to brag about. Uh, The problem is when we think about time, and we think about your contributions, we kind of can put those into the controllable bucket um, that you have influence on those things. Uh, Returns sometimes is in that uncontrollable bucket. Um, There will be decades, and I use the word decades intentionally because that's a long time. There will be decades where your returns are not what you expected. Um, They might be disappointing uh, or they might delight you. Um, But do you have total control of that? You don't. Um, And that's why having that long view, like uh, Drew mentioned, is so important. But where you do have some control, uh, or what we're calling in the article best practice, is you have to understand when you put money in a particular asset, whether it is a commodity, a collectible, a stock, a bond, a cryptocurrency, you have to decipher what is a fair estimate of the expected return on that asset most investors won't do that now you might say well hey how can you forecast something like that? Uh, not it impossible you don't know the future you're kind of right um you can use history to provide context and you can use some pretty simple valuation formulas to give you more context around how you can forecast the return of something. Now, what I will tell you, if we're talking about something like stocks, like a diversified portfolio of stocks, you are not going to be able to forecast the short term. You're not going to be able to realize what the next one year, three years, five years, six years, seven years are going to look like. When you start to stretch out that time horizon, what you end up seeing is that the historical dispersion of outcomes shrinks. So you get a more narrow understanding of what the results might look like. So again, you might take any 15 or 20-year period looking at a diversified portfolio of stocks and find that the you know, best and worst case scenario are between 8 to 10%. That gives you a pretty tight window. Now, if you're looking at shorter periods, right, that window might stretch from 40% to up 40%. Uh, and that doesn't give you any clarity. So the point I'm making is that if you're going to put an asset into your portfolio, you should always ask, what is the expected return and what factors and calculations am I using to do that? Uh, and are those... Uh, I don't know the right way to say, it, like valid or reputable or logical uh, ways to decipher what this might be worth in the future. And what I often say is that most investors don't do that. They just say in their mind, i like, or I need a 10% return, but they've never done the math or the analysis to figure out, is your portfolio even going to realistically be able to deliver that?
2: Why do you think that is when, when you, when you say that most people don't do that work, like why do you guys think that that's the case? Cause you're right. They don't do the, the homework behind it. W- why do you guys think that is?
3: I I'll go first. I, I think a part of it was the, the income in return need was different in the past. So it was much easier to attain a lot of, I think all of us have heard the 4% rule. I, I think it's talked about the most where people say, if I'm just withdrawing 4% from the portfolio and I, I know that, um, Maybe I, may, I have a portion of my assets that are available for emergencies or short-term expenses, but I'm taking 4% from the investment portfolio, no problem. Well, now if we see it, back in the day, that could be a portfolio of all fixed income and CDs. And it was probably producing maybe more than 4% at one point. Um, I, I, if you take that some, same portfolio today, it's generating less than 2%. So uh, that wouldn't work. So why don't people, do, uh, why don't they do that? I think that we've almost been uh, conditioned to think of portfolio management the wrong way.
0: I think another reason too, um, is that it's not intuitive. So if you come to me with an investment that I'm not familiar with, this isn't my field of work. And you say, Hey, uh, I'm going to present to you ABC XYZ. Um, my first question is like, how's it done over the last three years? And then you tell me, and then my assumption is in perpetuity, that's what it's going to look like. Now, behavioral finance is going to say that that's recency bias okay you can give it a a cool name like that but that's just how we work is that we work in heuristics right we need to take little shortcuts to survive right if we had to understand all the science behind breathing and drinking water and photosynthesis and all those things uh we wouldn't be able to live our life so we figure out these little shortcuts so that we can move on to the next thing But that's where I advocate hiring an advisor and then challenging the advisor or holding them accountable. Walk me through the logic on how you figured this out. Now, just do the smell test. If they say all those things of how this works and what the expectation should be, if it smells goofy, it's probably goofy.
1: Yeah, I think part of working with advisors really unpacking um, how markets not just have performed historically. If you look at, let's say, the S&P 500, but then translating that into, right, from historical education to what exactly the portfolio um, should look like uh, as a future outcome um, to meet their needs. And if they can't do that well, or they make promises um, that sound too extravagant, I think it's definitely something you should be aware of. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and you want to keep it real simple? I'll give you the answers to the test right now, is that one of the best ways to predict future returns when it's coming to a diversified stock portfolio is the valuation today. Um, if you're paying a heavier price per the earnings that those companies are creating on day one, it is going to dilute or shrink your expected return in the future. If you took a portfolio starting out of the financial crisis or at the bottom of the uh the covid moment in in march 23rd of last year you purchase at that bottom point you get really good returns why? because valuations were really shrunk Mm -hmm. um that's why you can use valuations not as a timing mechanism but as a way to forecast what my future expected returns are i can take what the earning Uh, per dollar is, I can reverse it and give myself what's called an earnings yield, look at that, add up to the dividend yield, and I can give uh, some context or idea of what return I should be assuming. I moved fast through that. If you want more details, you can email tom at thebonsagroup.com. I can expand on that. But it's just a real back of the napkin, simple way to say, hey, if I'm going to plug in a return to the financial plan, that return needs to be realistic to kind of that valuation equation.
3: And I think in the article you used like an example, don't you, of like what the uh, return would be needed on the equity side if you were to split the portfolio?
0: Yeah, I just said um, maybe an investor walks in and they say, hey, you know what, I think I want or need a 10% return. Uh, And you look at a portfolio that half bonds that are yielding 2% and half stocks where the return is unknown. Bonds are easy, right? The return is actually defined. It is the yield. So if half your portfolio is going to give you 2% and your goal is to get 10%, Well, the other half of your portfolio has to give you 16%, right? So where you go from there is you look at what we'd call like base rates. Uh, Is there a 20-year period where stocks have done a 16% return? Is that the majority or the minority? In those times that that happened, what was the starting valuation point? Uh, My guess is you're probably going to find that that's not realistic, So if your goal was to get a 10% return, that might be the wrong portfolio design. Maybe there's no portfolio design that gets you there, but there should be a science behind it, not just a a rolling of the dice and hoping this lands on two and five.
3: The other problem, too, is I think, uh, you know, the media and financial television, it shows like a highlight reel of returns where if a common investor maybe isn't as well versed and they just turn it on and they see, I see companies every day with 20% returns. Isn't it, You just guys have to pick the right stocks. Isn't that normal? <laughs> I think it sometimes puts the wrong expectation on the portfolio. And like you said, it, it doesn't really pencil out.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that we touched on is the difference between a 2% return and an 8% return. When we're talking about adding time back in, we're talking about something like 30 years uh, on a million dollar portfolio. It doesn't even double at a 2% return over 30 years. On a million-dollar portfolio at an 8% return, 30 years later, it's worth 10 times more. That is a huge difference, uh, and that gives you uh, the idea of when you make this martini with time and um, returns, uh, it can produce some uh, great results as far as wealth building. I'm going to pivot us a little bit, though. Uh, We kind of brushed over one of the first parts of the The equation. The most important part? (laughs) Uh, No, not the most important part, (laughs) but this idea that the equation starts with a principal amount. Um, And I think what new investors miss on is how incredibly important your contributions are. So let's just make up some crazy numbers so that we can have a hypothetical. Uh, I have an investment account with $100,000. If I save $20,000 a year this year, it is like producing a synthetic 20% return, yep. right? Because I'm taking this little kitty, this nest egg of $100,000, i am putting $20,000. Guess what? That money doesn't know the difference of if it was earned from an investment or if it came out of my savings. Now, it gets harder to move the needle with contributions at the end of a savings period. But at the beginning, it makes all the difference. Right? If you can save 30000 a year, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a whole lot easier to get 30% that way than trying to find an investment that's going to compound at 30%. And right. I put a chart in there that basically shows the, 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 the sweeping impact of that, saying that in, you know, let's just make up a time period in the first 10, 15 years, your contributions are so much more important than your actual returns. And to kind of give us that visual, I use that proverbial snowball Um, is that in order to get a snowball that's accumulating size and stuff rolling down the hill, it has to start with a base. And then what ends up happening is that as it rolls down the hill, that new snow adds onto that base and then sticks to the stuff that's already stuck and then sticks to the other stuff that's already stuck. And that's this idea of interest earning interest. But all of it comes back to having some level of foundation. So if you want advice to give to your kids, your grandkids or, or new investors, save a ton. That's how you give yourself really good, quote-unquote, returns. Especially
2: if you're young, right? So encouraging young people that, that time horizon, people, you know, at 15, 16, 17, early 20s, I mean, just pounding it into their head because at those ages in particular, immediate gratification is, is really pervasive. So to have somebody outside of them with wisdom saying, Hey, hey, this is the time to start building that snowball. And I think it would be interesting – when I showed, I used back uh, my sister in law when she's 21, and contributing to her 401k, she did not see the value at the front end, and it was doing this miracle of compounding with her and showing her after 40 years, this is what it would look like with an average return of 8%, so to say, and her mind was blown, and then she started wanting to contribute as much as she possibly could. So I think creating a picture for young investors is really helpful that to motivate right as well. So.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is where and how to start for particularly younger investors. And um, I think the the concept of having a systematic contribution is so valuable. Um, and that's where you really start to see you know, the money. Tell continue. us more about what that means. Setting up an automatic you know deposit or contribution, whether it's in a qualified plan or just a regular brokerage account, whether it's $100 a month or $5,000 a month. Just getting that started is so valuable because once you do it, um, unless something really tragic, you know, large happens with your spending, your income needs, um, it's gonna it's gonna stay that way, and then it's gonna allow um, a lot a lot of that the miracle of compound and interest to start to happen. Um, but you know, if you don't really know where to start, how much, that's where have an advisor. Uh, really comes into is they can start to pinpoint because um, that can be an overwhelming thing to think about. You know, do I do $200 or 1000 and what accounts do I put it into? Um, but it, but it is really significant. Or a lot of
3: times people will worry more about saving and less about, you know, debt management. They may have outstanding credit cards or student loans that's compounding at a pretty high rate. Mm. And they just thought, oh, I've you know, I've always been taught I need to save this amount every month no matter what. But some of the low-hanging fruit might be just to organize their debt or estate management
2: and not to mention what Nate was bringing up that if you're doing these automatic contributions to a IRA or a brokerage account what you're all what you're doing as well is you're actually implementing a strategy called dollar cost averaging Um, in in addition to that which is fantastic meaning that you're not even trying to time the market you're faithfully adding month over month or year over year to your to your savings nest and you're gonna buy at highs you'll buy at lows you'll buy right in the in the middle But if you do that over a long period of time, you should have a good average between the highs and the lows. And that's a faithful investing practice called dollar cost averaging.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, And even sometimes it just gets down to the framing. I might tell a young investor is, hey, measure your returns, add add in your contributions. You deserve it, Sean. Um, You know, if you had $100,000 and you saved $20,000 this year and you got a 10% return, my friend, you got a 30% return. Um, you should tell people at the cocktail party that um, you should tell yourself that you should journal it. You deserve it. Um, Cause sometimes that little framing matters. Um, and sometimes we underestimate the power of our own saving. Now I will say, um, and this is a good pivot point to kind of, uh, we now talked about principal or your contributions. We talked about your returns. And then we talk about now that third factor that really gives you that uh, exponential component. Uh, and that's time. Um, in the end, when, when, when what Nate was talking about, when you, you're talking to an investor is on the, the, the latter half of their life, uh, and they now have a very large snowball that's rolled down the entire hill, that's when returns um, really start to amplify, right? When you're getting even smaller returns, uh, your low single digits on a big base or a big number, it's huge. I, I know there is one person on Twitter that every time uh, a particular um, – software company pays out their dividend. He publishes what their former CEO, Bill Gates, got in dividends that day. Now, it's not to say that their dividend percentage-wise is huge, because it's not. It's not relatively big. But his number is gigantic. Why? Because he has a huge base. Uh, It's a huge number he's calculating off. And uh, for fun, what I put in the article was these two really simple charts of showing the difference between something that is linear and something that's exponential. What happens when you're looking at something exponential, um, if you're looking from left to right, it's very boring on the left side. It almost looks like a flat line. But then that slope just gets amplified uh, in almost an excessive way where it looks like it's headed to the moon, as uh, some (laughs) investors might say. Uh, So to get the benefits uh, of that exponential growth – you have to allow an investment to uh, be invested for a long time. And I will throw the ball over to you, Nate. I know you were a chef in a past life, um, and I'm guessing, so correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're cooking something like a a meat or something like that, uh, you want to leave it in the oven for a particular amount of time. And I'm guessing that if you take it out early or try to – fiddle with the temperatures or things like that it is going to change the the dynamics of what you're going to eat and, and i would say that's probably a good analogy for investing
1: yeah absolutely um time and temperature
0: is it's, that huge tell us more
1: yeah that the two main factors in cooking is time and temperature so um, can you
2: give us a steak or a type of uh, meat that didn't parallel that or
3: uh, <laughs> I think it can, you make a, can you make a food uh, recommendation yeah.
1: I like reverse steering my ribeyes uh, <laughs> 275 two in the oven until internal temperature reaches <laughs> about 120 a poem and then finish with a hot sear and a cast iron. We're going we're to get the email most
3: emails, <laughs> to Tom at the Bonser Group, because people are going to want a recipe. You can, can email Tom at
0: the Group dot com for that specific recipe and our uh, weekly delight from Mr. Nate Straw. We but can't
2: talk about stocks, but we can talk about specific types of beef, which is exactly. Which is
0: you just missed it. We can't talk about stocks, no stocks but we can talk steaks. about steaks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Stocks that. and steaks. Yeah, yeah, there you yeah. go. That's a great point. Um, but no, I love that that was just kind of top of mind for you. That, like, hey, I'm a chef. It's time and temperature Um, because with investing, we should have that idea is that, hey, like, what are my two controllables? Because as a chef, you can control those two things. Mm -hmm. So we're telling people, hey, time and contributions, that's your job. Um, Yes, you should meet with your advisor, design a portfolio that gives you um, a, a way that you can get those type of returns that you want. But your time and temperature is your time and contributions. Um, and, and one thing, if you want to know kind of the power behind that or, or what that looks like, I, I've referenced this before. But 97% of Warren Buffett's wealth was accumulated after the age of 65. The man could have claimed Social Security at that point, And that's when he earned 97% of his wealth. Why does that matter? Well, he's like 92 years old. So we're talking about twenty five or twenty seven years or whatever time period that is, and that is what that exponential hockey stick compounding growth looks like if you're willing to stay invested for a long time.
2: Yeah, the it's uh, you brought up um, Warren Buffett, and I think you also had a quote by uh, Ben Franklin in the article. I if did, my, my, Mr. Uh,
0: ben himself. If
2: my uh, reading uh, retention is is good, and one of the things I when when I was listening or reading your article about ben franklin i don't know if you guys know this but when he uh, a year before he died he altered his will and he left uh, at that time it was equivalent to four thousand pounds to both the cities of philadelphia and boston and he basically put it in his will that nobody could touch it for a hundred years and then after a hundred years they could take 75 percent of the principal and then have the continuing interest to pay for apprenticeships and internships for the city But he basically knew that if you have this 4,000 pounds that he started in 1790s when he died, that within 200 years, he understood time horizon that it would be exponentially huge for the cities of Philadelphia and Boston. And so that 4,000 pounds in from 1790 to 1887 in Boston was worth $330,000 in Boston alone. and. Philadelphia it was seventy five thousand, probably due to a lot of mismanagement. But that's besides the point. <laughs> um, but but it's interesting that even Ben Franklin, right? These guys who is really that why understand... they couldn't fix the bell? Yeah, <laughs> they
0: couldn't afford it. <laughs> that's great,
2: Quick Liberty Bell joke? Yeah, no, okay, sorry, that was go ahead. Good. No, that was good. But it's but but to the point is is that these guys understood that time was the most important factor. Um, that exponentially over time, that it would be huge. Another uh, philanthropist by the name of Jonathan Holden. Um, In 1930s, wanted to put $2.8 million in 1930. And then in the trust, he had it to where nobody could touch it for over a thousand years. And there are some estimates that it would be worth around four point something trillion dollars if that were to happen. Uh, long story short, he couldn't do it, but the courts ruled it, ruled it down for whatever reason. But these guys understood the, the power of time. So I thought those were kind of cool illustrations to, to bring I, I love
0: those illustrations. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because we're talking about these people that are forefathers or people we look up to or like, uh, you know, we had a, a quotes from Albert Einstein about like these people that we're crediting with as geniuses. And, and we're also saying that this is a simple truth but most people don't understand it. And I kind of wrapped the article up is, um, I was thinking if I was watching that, uh, hands on hard body competition, uh, and you showed me the 24 contestants, I don't know what I would use to figure out my guess on who would win. I think my eyes would deceive me, right? I would pick some sort of, uh, attribute or feature or something that I would think would, would be solid correlation. And I'd probably be wrong. Uh, and I think the same thing is true with wealth. Um, You don't actually need to come from money like family. You you don't have to have a a crazy high income. Uh, You don't have to have a crazy high IQ. Um, I can tell you stories of high income earners and professional athletes that went broke. And I can tell you stories about librarians and janitors and real people that lived a life with modest incomes that left millions of dollars to charity and surprised people um, when they passed away to say like, oh, this person down the street that i knew every day they left 10 million dollars to the local university or the hospital or or the church why is that true because of time um that those people had the temperament and the behavior um to take advantage of that time component uh which for me as simple the truth that is it still baffles me uh
1: one to start to to Play around with the whole concept um, when I when I first started out in the business. I downloaded a compounded interest app, mm-hmm. and that is a lot of fun to play with. You just get the app, you can set. I uh,
0: just nonny. want you to know that we're all sounding like real nerds because uh, Drew's talking about some, <laughs> how it, how just so excited he is to talk to his uh, sister-in-law about this power of compounding. You're telling us to download apps. I agree with you 100%, but uh, we have the same we've, thing. We've, <laughs> yeah, I have it too. And I, I love scrolling through it and saying like, what if I put this number, this return or this yep. time? Um, but yeah, uh, you've you've gotten us to nerdhood, but go ahead.
1: Just for the listeners, if you want to start to play around with it, it starts to get you more excited about, you know, whether it's seven years or three and then setting. the rate you you're anticipating to get on the return than the amount you're contributing and it's it starts to really um, show what we're talking about I think yeah
0: yeah and it's uh, one thing Sean and I were talking about uh, you know the bonson group uh, we have some performance tools that we use to measure returns and things like that and it is it's enjoyable to look at people that have been investing for longer time periods with us, because then we get to see these huge, colossal numbers of what that total return figure looks like. Um, you you can't really do that when it's a newer client, unless you know just the timing was incredible. They started as a client on March 23rd of last year. You can get a, a little quick sneak peek of that. But when you get to really review what it looks like when someone's been investing for a long time period, and some of the things that Sean and I were looking at were like five or six years, that's not even a long time period. Um, you start looking uh, at historical results for somebody at twenty-five or thirty years. That is where uh, that's where Benjamin Franklin or Albert Einstein saw the math, and they're like, "Wow, that's incredible."
2: Yeah, agreed. And uh, one thing I neglected to mention on the Brent Franklin thing is between 1960 and 1990, that that four thousand sterling pounds funded. Seven thousand medical internships for people who didn't have the money to be doctors in the city of Boston and Philadelphia. So seven thousand men and women who couldn't afford to be, you know, go to um, you know medical school got full scholarships through that, and it paid their entire medical um, tuition for 7,000. I mean, you just think about the impact that that 4,000 makes and he understood that time horizon, which I just think was kind of a cool, you know, feel good thing to where you think, well, these are 7,000 lives that were affected by this man's foresight um, is, is extremely impressive. One, one thing too, when I looked at your chart, I love the chart where it starts, you know, it's very flat and then at the very end it starts oh, going sick. up. Yeah. yeah, it goes up. There's a real parallel in everyday life that I think that is is really helpful that we can see. You can use parenting with children, and it's very similar. The parents who are involved in the everyday, ordinary, mundane life of their children, changing diapers, playing in the backyard, reading books to them, that are just hands-on involved, you don't see the fruit of what your kid is going to do in life. You're not gonna see that fruit until typically they're in their twenties or thirties and forties, until you have grandchildren, your son's a successful some, you know, whatever, father and, and has a, a job and and so forth. And that's like that bell curve though, right? Like for the first, you know, 18, 20 years, it's it's real mundane. it's it, you're not seeing a lot of fruit. You're getting a little bit of victories here and there, but it's at the end right at the end of you know the grandparents life type when they're looking back they're thinking wow what a what a, a beautiful thing that we built and that's by being hands on right doing the faithful ordinary things and it's like it's like a dad who you know and then the opposite would be the investor who's looking for quick immediate results right now it's like the parent who doesn't have to be involved in the everyday ordinary thing with their life and then they try to make up for it real quick and take them on a really extravagant vacation and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of connection between the father and the son because they're trying to do one-off things. And that's like the investor who's trying to find that one thing, get a quick result, and then and then bang. So it's something I was thinking about, but yeah.
0: No, I think it makes sense because what you transition to, which will be a future Tom article, is that um, not all of this is just this idea of just building wealth to build wealth. The next stage is legacy, right? And Benjamin Franklin funding 7,000 people for uh, medical school, I think you mentioned, uh, that's legacy. Uh, Investing in your children, that's legacy. Uh, And that's how we offer meaning to these things that... we have to kind of create that connection point. So we talked about a lot today. I appreciate you guys uh, for joining us. Uh, We're going to ask our listeners uh, to rate the podcast. Five stars is preferred. Comments are welcome. Um, You can email Tom at thebonsigroup.com. You can address it to Sean, Nate, Drew, or Trevor. Um, Your comments, your questions, your feedback uh, is always helpful. We love to talk about things that you guys are interested in. And um, we will sign off now, but we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on money. Money.